0: You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupiton. This week on the show... My conversation with a live, Louisiana-born Roots and Roller, who has one of those once-in-a-generation, make-your-hair-stand-up-on-the-back-of-your-neck, ghostly, lilting voices that doesn't seem of this time or place, and doesn't seem to fit with his youthful, toothy, grinning, leather-clad persona. The kind of voice that makes you scratch your chair across the floor and get closer to the speaker. The kind of voice that, even in the quiet front bar of LA's famed Troubadour, where we recorded this, seems to tear you out of your reality for just a moment and take you to an alternate universe that fades in and out of focus, part spaghetti Western dust storm and part Hookfield 60s AM radio sunshine. Dylan LeBlanc. Mostly I record these dispatches wherever I can find a quiet place. Maybe my homemade blanket fort of a studio here in LA, but sometimes. There's a bit too much of that weed whacker and lawnmower hum right outside the window for my liking. Or maybe we find a cramped hotel where I can convince a touring artist to tell their tale into the mic, which we have to place on an upside-down ice bucket with people shouting in the rooms next door. It's not ideal. But this episode, this is special. We got to record Dylan LeBlanc, the man from Shreveport who now calls Nashville home, in a hallowed hall up the road on the fuzzier side of Beverly Hills, inching into Hollywood a place where you might have seen a young Elton John levitating off his piano in the recent biopic Rocket Man, a place where Carol King and James Taylor first made their mark and still perform each year, a music hall that smells like the echoes of beer and the occasional unrepentant greatness. The Troubadour, which, despite L.A.'s fractured music scene and the fact that the parking is a nightmare, has somehow retained its mystique and its draw. I was lucky enough to record my group, Dust Bowl Revival's live record, Lampshade On, here, and man, it was one of the more nerve-wracking nights of my life. But we did it, and the sound was magical. And I was glad no one kicked me and Dylan out when we chatted by the buzzing fridge in the quiet, shining bar before his first headlining show there, headlining the Troubadour, just like Elton John. Let me tell you, it's a thrill to see your name on that marquee where so many greats have been. And that's where I found Dylan, standing right under the marquee in his black Stevie Ray Vaughan hat and his motorcycle jacket in his shades. And despite still being a 20-something, I could have sworn he had materialized from a different place. Not quite the past, but somewhere where ambitious dropouts like him either make it in the Muscle shows ecosystem or die out like so many drugged-up dinosaurs. And really, Dylan could have been one of those guys. A hometown hero playing a guitar in a smoky bar never getting out of his hometown circuit. There's so many guys all around the country who are kings in their little town. But that's it. And my favorite part of our talk in The Troubadour was when Dylan got vulnerable, told me that this is his only plan. There's no backup plan. This, in many ways, is the family business. And it's a hard business, but it's his. There's no one to bail him out if it doesn't work out. Maybe that's what we want from our favorite artists, to watch them walk the ledge each night and knowing that if they fall, no one's gonna catch them. I was surprised to hear that while he has toured extensively in Europe, building a following over there, stateside, he's just starting to make a dent. But the good news is people in high places are giving him a shot. Dave Cobb produced his newest record, Renegade, and it's clear that Dylan has grown up a lot in the last few years. It's a big, snarling, cinematic banger of a record. This is the last episode of our summer season, so I hope you can maybe listen to this with a cold drink in your hand underneath the sun and drift away a little bit. Because Dylan's voice, it's meant to transport you. Where you want to go, it's up to you. So without further ado, here he is now, Dylan LeBlanc. Where are we right now?
1: We are at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, California.
0: Just sitting behind the bar. Not like behind the bar, but like...
1: <laughs> We're like in front of the bar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It just opened up. We're raising the bar. That's <laughs> true. In front of it. And you're, uh... Wait, you're headlining the Troubadour for the first time.
1: Yep. Trippy.
0: I mean, you looked pretty cool in that that leather jacket, <laughs> that black hat in front.
1: Yeah, in this 80-degree like Los Angeles Like young Graham school.
0: Parsons <laughs> loitering on the sidewalk. Yeah, man. You're from uh, way down there. Lafay- was it Lafayette? Um, no,
1: I was actually born in Shreveport. Shreveport. Yeah, but that was close.
0: Do you feel like your southern accent disappears when you sing?
1: Uh, I certainly hope so. <laughs> It's like an English
0: accent. Like, Beatles don't sound British when they're like rocking out. Like, where does it go when you sing?
1: I mean, but early Beatles, I saw her standing there. You know, kind of. You know, I can kind of tell, but maybe not. Definitely not later. Later Beatles, but I don't know. What do I know?
0: What did you grow up listening to? Your dad played at Muscle Shoals, right?
1: Yeah, he he was a Muscle Shoals um, songwriter. He was a staff songwriter at Fame, and then he also did session work for certain people there. Um, so the first thing I started listening to was like country music that he was writing stuff like that. And also, you know, I grew up in Shreveport for the first 10 years of my life. So whatever was on the radio is what I listened to because we were pretty sheltered as far as music went. I grew up with my mother and my stepfather and it's pretty religious situation there. So the first thing I ever started listening to was like, you know, hymns and stuff, Yeah,
0: stuff like that. Did you go to church when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah, we went to North Shreve Baptist Church. Brother Roy Davis gave me more ass-whoopings than anybody else in the whole church. So, Why,
0: why did he have to ass-whoop your ass, rather?
1: <laughs> well, me and my little brother were often interrupting sermons and throwing candy wrappers at each other and being loud during his sermon. And there was this part of the uh, Sunday... A sermon where you could choose a song sometimes, hmm. and I embarrassed him because in the hymn there was a actual uh, the Canadian national anthem okay. was in the hymnal, and so I was like, Oh, oh Canada! <laughs> and Why would it be in the hymnal? I have no idea. It, we we still do this. There are, are curious Because there was like a hockey that. match in the basement. Could be, could be. It, I mean, it doesn't really get cold. There is a hockey team in Shreveport though, the Mudbugs. Oh yeah. shit. Yeah, pretty cool I used to go to those games when I was younger
0: Did you play sports?
1: Oh no, 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 no No, we weren't allowed to play sports, man like You weren't allowed? No, 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 we couldn't do it I don't know, I think it was really because we didn't have the money for it oh. But my parents well, you're not allowed to do that They just didn't want to tell us that they were broke
0: Yeah, because I would think like that would be one of the few free things To get a young, energetic kid's mind right Well, you know, yeah football pads
1: Right I mean, but we didn't we didn't get to do that mainly. But I think it was because we we didn't get to do much of anything. My mother was like very she's such a sweet lady, very very soft spoken and very kind, but she was also extremely like overprotective. Yeah, you know, and so she kept us on a very short lease. We we could only like play in the backyard, right? You know, and we couldn't ride our bike like anywhere around the neighborhood. There's a lot of crime down there. Mm. And there was like always something weird in the news about somebody kidnapping somebody or like, you know, child molestation. It's, it's a weird place. So I think she would, you know, hear that kind of Your stuff. Your folks and, divorced when you were real young. Yeah, they got divorced when I was like four months old. Me and my sister, I have a twin sister. So her and, her and I moved, stayed with my, my mom. And we, moved, we lived with my grandfather for about a year after my mom and dad divorced. And then she met my stepdad and they're still married today. So,
0: Does your twin sing as well?
1: She can. She's really good. She can harmonize and she just like naturally hears it. You know what I mean? Some people can't do that. You have to like, you have that natural, like you can hear it or you don't, you know? I guess it can be taught. I'm not really sure. But she definitely can do it, but she won't do it. She's like the most shy person I've ever met. I think that something has to be wrong with us to feel like we need to stand in front of people and sing.
0: Well, it's part of our good-natured Narcissism, I think, as performers. <laughs> That's
1: a very delicate and uh, well. It's like interesting know, way to put
0: say, it. You say like, well, I, I want to make people feel something, right? And sort of blast them out of their comfort zones with my poetic <laughs> journeys. Yeah. But really, you also like want people to applaud you constantly. Oh yeah. You know. Oh yeah. That's. Did yeah. you have the performer bug right from the beginning with your dad around, or is it uh, something that you learned later?
1: So like the first. 10 years of my life I mainly would see him on every other weekend and he was playing a lot in Shreveport like out in the bars and uh, I stayed a lot with my grandmother and uh, I remember there was this like VHS tape of him and he was in a band called The Underground they were like a rock and roll band and it was like a telethon to raise money for something I don't even remember but I remember watching that over and over again as a kid and I had like a little toy guitar and a toy microphone and I just sort of mimic what he was doing you know and I definitely thought that he was a superhero you know he was like banging his head and playing guitar and it was loud and it was cool and obnoxious and I just thought I and I, and I always really loved music like sound you know my, my mother said when I was a kid I would stick my ear like directly to the speaker when the radio was on you know, and just like you sit there wow. for you know hours and just listen to music. And she was a big Billy Joel fan, mm. strangely enough. And so, and I'm still to this day, I just I absolutely adore Billy Joel. And people people make fun of me for that, but I don't care. I think he's like incredible.
0: What's your go-to Billy Joel song well, I mean, in a pinch?
1: I mean, dude, I'm I'm you know it, of course it's scenes from an Italian restaurant. That song is perfect. You know, also uh, she's always a woman to me. Mm. You know, that one's. What a great love song. Still Rock
0: and Roll is my go-to rock and karaoke roll. song.
1: That was mine and my cousin's, like, dance song when we were, like, five. Yeah. We would just dance in the living room and blast that when it would come on I the I just radio. love how spare that Great song. sax solo, too.
0: It's so spare that the yeah. the muted guitar, there's, like, really, like, the drums are barely there. Yeah. Like, I don't even know if there is bass, really. <laughs> you know? Right. It's like a hit song with like barely any musical accompaniment. <laughs> you know, it's like almost a cappella.
1: <laughs> That's what makes it great. There's this Sharon Van Etten song that I love. It was on her album Epic. Uh, came out like 10 years ago, probably. Uh, I'm a huge fan of her. But she, ha- it was this song called One Day. You ever heard that song? I think so. Oh my gosh, man. It's it, The thing I love about that song is it's a guitar, a tambourine, a bass, and drums, and then her. Hmm. And it sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. It's huge. And it's, she's emoting in such a fantastic way just it draws you in
0: if there's something that sounds huge it's your new record Renegade thanks man thanks that was a segue
1: yeah that was a good segue Um, I like the way you did
0: that (laughs) but very like super head banging in the car type like 70s rock and roll echo you know just love it I mean, I think you know we were talking out front uh, the troubadour here about how I think when Dave Cobb first probably sent you some of the maybe it was the final mixes, were you like, wait, is this me? Is this this thing that I want to put out as me? Ooh. Is it it is like kind of pop forward, it is very like hook forward. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think, you know, you have a lot of dark poetic language going on in some of these that yeah. it feels like almost like a like a spaghetti western prison drama. <laughs> In a seventies
1: pop is, album, that is the best description I've ever heard. No, of but there, that album.
0: I'm like listening to these songs. There's a lot of like criminality happening, and yeah. and and guns, and and sort yeah. of fear of getting set up or yeah. uh, being taken down. You know, that song Domino. You know, it's yeah. like you're not gonna get me, right? You yeah. know, you're absolutely. Gonna, yeah. Do you you feel like there was a theme, or am I just imagining it?
1: No, 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 no. There was, uh, you know, I I was living in Lafayette for about three years. I had a house in this really small town right outside of Lafayette called Bro Bridge, and I was spending lots of time in New Orleans and hanging out down there and just sort of watching... I wouldn't say I was hanging out with some unsavory characters but the way the li- the way life goes down there is just so different it's such a party mm. oriented environment everybody lives for the party mm. and there's a lot of uh, sex drugs and rock and roll you yeah. know but it's on like a very it's that quasi weird southern gothic feel to it as well you right. know what i mean like right. we're
0: it's the only city like, Louisiana in general, a lot of times, feels like another country. It does. Country. You know, there's like people
1: speaking French, and there's a lot of that culture there. Um, there's not much segregation there in the way of, like, right. everybody sort of visits the same spots, like, what, no matter what your class is. Right. You know, and uh, I think that's what drew, drew me to it a lot as well. Uh, you wouldn't think that because of where it is in America and the history that it has, but it actually... It is like that, and and everybody, you make a lot of friends down there, you know, that that have seen a lot, and uh, there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of, but people have each other's back there in a way like that. Some places like Nashville might might not in a way, you know, and it's but it's like a street thing. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Not right. like a you know, it's a it's a very street environment. I don't really know. That's a cheap way. Of Where's saying your it. home base right now?
0: I'm in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm in Nashville and I love it. I mean, didn't you great. like
0: that cool breeze coming up Santa Monica Boulevard, <laughs> just like Cheryl Crow said? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we would welcome you here with open arms. Right. See you in a nice bungalow down in Venice. Yeah,
1: I mean, I would totally live here. This place is. Uh, over the last ten years, I've really fallen in love with Los Angeles.
0: But I feel like people from the South do have their heart down there. That it's it's something that. Yeah. I can't understand yeah. being a Yankee as I am.
1: Yeah, well, Chicago's pretty amazing, too. I mean, I love that city. And every time I go there, I'm, I'm, it's so majestic to me. And, you know, especially growing up from a smaller town, even though it is technically a metropolitan area, you know, um, it, it, I'm fascinated by bigger cities and, and the culture in those cities. And, you know, you can't go to a Polish restaurant anywhere in Louisiana yeah. or, you know,
0: yeah, because when you went, so you went to Muscle Shoals, started playing in bands, and then you had to go to rehab. Is that true?
1: That is true. Um, I, but it was not. It was actually I went to Muscle Shoals after rehab, which is a, a, a common misconception. And I, I, I was in high school, and I, and I dropped out uh, because of I was strung out uh, at the time, been taking like pills and stuff, and. <laughs> smoking a lot of weed and drinking a lot. I always sort of had a way of overdoing it.
0: Um, Did you hate school?
1: I did. I just knew that I wanted to... I wrote a lot, and I was kind of kept to myself. I had a few really, really good friends that I really loved and um, that we hung out with with all the time and uh, that played music and they were interested in music, and it turned me on to music that I still love today. But... um, yeah, I, 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 I always I feel like I always felt Like when things would happen to me I felt like I was always overreacting mm. Like when a girl would break up with me Or something, I felt like I didn't react The way that other people reacted to that You were a little more dramatic just, Yeah, like I was just a little more dramatic Or just a little more like
0: You felt things a little deeper Deeper,
1: yeah, like yeah. it crushed me Yeah You know, like it, Whereas like, you know A friend would be like Oh, well, that sucks You is, know
0: Is there anything you would like to say To the girl who broke up with you In high school right now? <laughs>
1: Um, Jenna no. Johnson <laughs> No I I couldn't think of anything Hope, hope you're doing well out there Hope yeah, everything's cool She's a nice guy Yeah She <laughs> was from out here actually uh, And I was like crazy about her She was from Eureka Which I think is like northern California Yeah She was It's out up there Yeah <laughs> But yeah I don't know I just you know I was always like Feeling things really, taking them really hard, and I felt like I had this sense of urgency, and I was really intense, and I think that probably threw people off. I've always been really intense about things. I've toned it way down, and the closer I've gotten to thirty, so.
0: Once you turn thirty, you realize all these expectations I had. They seem quaint now, you know. They're like, oh, well, I have to conquer the universe by. 26. Yeah. I remember, like, 26. You're like, after 25, like, have you really done anything with your life? Right. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, oh, wait. It's going to take a lot longer. Yeah. You know? Like, what is the goal? You're on the road. You're playing the Troubadour. What is the, like, the real dream? Like, what are you going for?
1: I mean, I think if I could, you know, just always if i could sell out you know 250 to 500 z clubs for the rest of my career I, li- I would honestly be i would be happy with that that would make me very happy i could have a sustainable lifelong career doing that i mean that's to me the goal you know what we're doing now you know i mean i i really i love it i mean if that was The only, if that was as far as we ever got, it wouldn't hurt my feelings. Hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, everything else is just icing on the cake, you know.
0: Let's go back again one more time to high school because that's, there's a line in Born Again Mm -hmm. about being at the edge of 18. Mm -hmm. It's like the guy version of Stevie Nicks' edge of 17. Yeah, right. But like, what were you feeling at that point?
1: About your future. Oh, man. 18 was a tough year. I was, uh, I had, there was this girlfriend I had from South America, and I just, like, couldn't get her to get serious about me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I was always trying to, like, take it to the next level, and I was, f- I don't know, frustrated with that. I think I have, like, serious, like, I'm definitely one of those mommy issues type dudes. Uh-huh. Sucks. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a hindrance, but um no, I mean I was just trying to like get her to take it to the next level. She wasn't into it. I could kind of feel that. Um, and then I remember uh, I started a band called Abraham and we we lasted for like six months and it was really cool. Mm. It was me and this other singer and um, and I really wanted that to work, you know, and we were gonna come out here and play the mint. you know we had all these yeah. plans, you know. <laughs> And then, uh, then the singer like basically got engaged and got married, and yeah. um, so everything sort of fell apart after that. And then this other guy that the other guys in the band came home from college, and they wanted to back him up. And then I remember going to rehearsal for that when that guy he was like, "We're just going to back him up since Michael's not going to play anymore." And I was like, cool. So then I show up to rehearsal, and they already know, like, all of this guy's songs. Mm. And I'm like, well, can you kind of show me this part? And I remember them just being, like, just sort of ignoring me, Yeah. you know? And so then I got the hint, like, oh, we don't, you're out. You know, like, we don't want to do this with you anymore. So then that happened, and I was super crushed. And then I remember I got, I just signed with ASCAP. Mm. And I was, like, super down. And I remember asking the universe, I remember sitting there and thinking, like, I'm really, really, really down and out right now. And, like, if there's something cool that could happen for me, that would be, now would be a good time. You know, because I was just, like, you know, uh, broke. I didn't have any money. I wasn't making any money. I was, uh, at that time, I was living in my granddad's spare room. And he had a hair shop in his house. Mm. And uh, I was driving back and forth to Muscle Shoals to do little demos with my buddy Ben Tanner who worked at uh, Fame at the time and um, and I'd put together like all of these demos of Mm. these songs and I and I'd signed with ASCAP and they invited me to this new signing writer's night at the Bluebird Cafe Mm -hmm. so I did that and that was in like July I think of 2008 and I did that writer's night at the Bluebird and there was a guy there named uh, John Tiven who had done like a bunch of blues records and stuff Mm -hmm. and he was the coordinator for the jack Daniels uh annual like party he was like yeah. he got he curated the music for it anyway uh he came to england to do that and when he did he told uh jeff travis that was the head of rough trade records about me mm. and said to check me out and he did and then i got a myspace message oh yeah yeah from uh, that was back in the myspace days from the a and guy and I kind of blew it off because honestly, I'd never heard of Rough Trade before. Yeah, you know, and so I told my friend Ben the next time I saw him, I was like, "I got this message from Rough Trade uh, saying that he liked the stuff he's hearing online and he wants to me to send him like ten songs." I like, you think that's legit? And he's like, "Dude, Rough Trade is extremely legit. Like, and he yeah. showed me the Smiths and like, you know, that their ties to the Strokes and yeah. like all this stuff. So we put together what was essentially my first album, Popper's Field, and sent it to him. And they're just all just demos." Mm-hmm. And um, and then I got a call saying they wanted to come see a show. So I booked this show in my hometown of Shreveport at the El Dorado Casino mm. at the Celebrity Lounge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. and uh,
0: It's time to do a homecoming show there.
1: Yeah. And so I was like uh, trying to just get as many people at that show to make it seem like I was a bigger deal than I was because I really wanted this deal. Yeah. And um, so I, I like got a decent amount of people and a lot of people or half of them were just drunk people that were yeah. already in the casino Yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway so they came and they liked the show and then I got signed uh, in February of the next year so it was crazy yeah man so that was something that, that was cool that, that did come
0: I've seen you play actually in Europe yeah I like we've both been on that Tonderfest thing before right oh yeah
1: I think you started in Europe too right because I started my career in Europe
0: no, not at all. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, that would sound cooler than yeah. starting your career in, at the Mint.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well,
0: we I we had a Wednesday residency at the Mint. It was the shit. <laughs> <laughs> we get I mean, hundred cool. people a night. Yeah, dude. Do you, be happy. do you think that the European audiences have caught, caught on to you quicker?
1: Yeah, I think they just keep their ear to the floor uh, about what we're doing a little closer than people here in America, you know. Uh, what we're doing is not... It's kind of been... It's getting more popular now, but it was lost on people, especially in, in 2010. Americana had not hmm. become a thing yet. Like, it, now it's huge. You know, that, that term Americana, whatever whatever yeah. that means. I think it just means what, when you don't know what it is, you call it Americana. But
0: Left-leaning country rock yeah
1: yeah exactly but uh, yeah so m- i definitely got more exposure in europe because i spent more time there first two years of my career from 2010 to 2012 i pretty much stayed over there touring you know that's
0: a, i mean that's a commitment for for a, a guy for from a small town
1: and i did it by myself for the most part because i didn't have any money yeah you know so I'll, I'll just go over there and take trains and and tour and Meet people. Did you ever get lost? Oh, yeah. Big time. Had a terrible time in Hamburg one time. I was trying to get to Amsterdam from Hamburg and totally freaked out. I got super high, (laughs) and I was, like, super stoned. By myself, I would bought some hash from some guy on the back of a moped (laughs) and smoked a bunch of hash and got on this this, uh, train, and I accidentally sat in first class, and I left my bag with my passport Uh and my credit card and my wallet, everything in there in the train station. And uh, took off, and it was just a mess. And then the, the German lady was yelling at me because I was sitting in the first class, but I didn't realize it. Yeah. And then she was like, "Yeah, you know, you speak German to me," and I was like, "No spreken a douche." Yeah. <laughs>
0: you know, she, uh, yeah, whatever. What do you think your life is going to look like ten years from now?
1: I just hope I'm alive ten years from now. You know, it's, I kind of take goal. it. I kind of take it one day at a time. And just sort of try to stay in the present moment. If I think too much about the future, it causes anxiety. And if I think too much about the past, I just get sad. So I just try to stay right here in the moment and uh, appreciate and be grateful for the cool things that are happening. And uh, try not to be disappointed when I don't get everything that I want, you know? Try to stay in a sort of a, a balance, let the pendulum sort of stay right here not swing yeah. too far to the left or right
0: and that is i think the the thing that i wish i could be better at is not being oh, me so low when the lows hit and the yeah. and then over exuberant when the highs hit because i think look at a certain point you have to realize when you're in that medium limbo phase of yeah. being an artist like you're going to play Tuesday in Cleveland mm-hmm. and there's going to be 50 people there. Right. And then Friday in LA, there'll be 500 people going right. crazy. Yeah. But it always feels uniquely humiliating when you're like, wait, Cleveland didn't hear about Friday night.
1: <laughs> do they knew who, do they knew who I think I like, am? Like
0: Cleveland does not know or care yeah, that, until yeah. they do, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, there's nothing you can do. That's the other thing. There's like no amount of PR or no amount of press to make people like you. Yeah. You know, people have to make up their own minds. I think what people really, what really happens is other people say it's good, and until that happens, people aren't going to like it. Like, until other people are like, yeah, this is good, and then people have to be told, like, oh, yeah, that is good. You know what I well, mean? There's
0: a, a mystical thing that happens when everyone all of a sudden feels something at the same time. Yeah, like, exactly. All of a sudden, like, this kid with the black hat and the leather jacket is my guy. You know? <laughs> right.
1: And there's so many guys out there, <laughs> I and mean, there's so many people doing what we do. And I mean, my career has literally moved at a snail's pace. I mean, 10 years I've been on the road now, and I'm just now starting to see people come out to shows. And for in the last three years, you know, people buying the record and, and, and talking about it online. And I mean, I couldn't get. In America, especially my 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 career just started in the U.S. You know, like three years ago when Cautionary Tale came out, because I was lucky to get three people to a show anywhere, even in my hometown, people didn't care. So you know that was a that's a tough one too. You know,
0: and you're like, wait, people are packing it in Berlin, guys.
1: Come on. I know it was it was bizarre. It was bizarre.
0: But you're smart and you didn't know you were smart maybe, but like getting those hard years out of the way when you're young and stupid I think is smart because I think like I would not be able to sort of be doing that now when I'm married, you know, mid-30s. But like when you're 25 and you're just like, hey, someone's booking us in North Carolina? (laughs) right? You're like, fantastic. Yeah. And I miss a little of that Uh, Excitement Of like when you were young And just like Anyone In a room Listening to your music Was like An important feat Right You know Yeah And it's like You know If you're at the Troubadour And you see like Only 200 people show up You're gonna be pissed And heartbroken Or not
1: I probably wouldn't I'd probably be happy Um,
0: 200 people feels pretty good In here though Yeah
1: I mean that's 200 people that paid to see you. You just yeah. have to remember that like it's better than zero. I always have to tell myself How that. How did you
0: get this well adjusted is my question.
1: Just from p- literally playing to zero people and got like a lot. So I mean to me I remember when Cautionary Tale came out we got 50 people to a show uh, right after that came out and that freaked me I was ecstatic and people yeah. were like this is not good man. <laughs> you know and I'm like I'm just happy that 50 yeah. people showed. I mean like it just blew me away that there was 50 people that it wanted to be in the same room to hear a song that I had written, you know, or songs that I had written and it just, it freaked me
0: out. Gosh, Tale like, Your Tail came out on Single Lock. That's, uh, yeah. is that John Paul White's yeah. label it's Yeah, it's
1: John Paul White, uh, Ben Tanner, and then this third guy named Will Trapp who's just like yeah. the money, the money man. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, but they're a great label, you know, and they did me right on that record. They really did. I mean, they did everything they said they were going to do and, you know, uh, we worked. We worked hard. We toured for three years on that album, which is a lot of people don't tour that long on a, on an album. But we we did. You know, we did our last tour on that record was last year. We did two months in Europe, and it was insane. It was like forty five shows, with two days off. Yeah, we didn't get any days off.
0: I might need to ask you who your driver was, because we're figuring out our first real like month and a half long Europe and yeah. England thing.
1: I got a great guy actually, and he would be happy to drive you, and he's cheap, and he's reasonable, and he's not—he doesn't like just try to take it. Take he's you in for Germany. Work. He's in the uh, the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, Truchet is the name of the company. Interesting. And uh, he's great.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's daunting. I think when you realize that you put all this effort time and money into a record that feels important and feels lived in and and you know it's your life yeah and when you don't see sort of any callback from the universe it feels like wait what is this for yeah you know but then I think you can become grateful when stuff does start to happen.
1: And I think you just have to not stop doing it. You have to be yeah. crazy enough. Like I think a lot of people have backup plans. Yeah. And they have like, well, after twenty eight, if this isn't working out, I'm gonna move yeah. back home and I'm gonna use that degree that I earned and I literally have no backup plan. Like I have nothing. Like I don't have I have there's no family money anywhere. There's no there's no fallout, like there's no comfortable bed for yeah. me to fall on. So if this doesn't work yeah. out I'm fucked
0: but that's the kind of stuff that creates the fucking diamond from the coal dust being it's damn sure the kind of thing down. that makes
1: you want to light a fire under your ass and just go oh. but it's
0: not easy it's painful Yeah, because you have to kind of be in that blacksmith shop Yeah, banging away you yeah
1: know? you gotta work man you gotta work it's, a lot of people think you know like the music industry is not work and in a way, I can see where they could think that if you're going to a desk job and working eight hours and doing nine to five. Yeah. But you, you, it's a lot of mental work, and it's a lot of stress. Yeah. And you got to be crazy to want to do it and and, and and not have some
0: sort of a plan. What is your guilty pleasure that helps you relax?
1: Me? Oh, I, I love, like, I love coffee, even though that doesn't make me relax. <laughs> um, but my guilty pleasure, I mean, I love... Um, Candy a lot. I eat candy. <laughs> I like Skittles. I love beef Sour turkey. or standard? Uh, I really, if I'm at the movie theater, for some reason I always get the sour Skittles. But if I'm just driving in the car, I get the purple ones. They're my mm. favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The purple ones are a little sweeter. They got like some really cool tropical flavors. I'm into it.
0: I I get really into the comfort of knowing that Law & Order SVU is always on in the hotel. <laughs> T V stations. That's like
1: the show that never goes off.
0: They're what? still doing new episodes. I know it's, I think it's twenty insane. years
1: in. It's insane. I love that show though. Um remember what was it? Remember NYPD Blue? Yeah. What was that guy's name? The the Dennis Franz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a good one. I remember watching that when I was a kid. Remember the X Files? Yeah. That was a good one. That that scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. That episode, uh do you remember the episode where they were um the, the weird family, the inbred family. Did you ever see that one? And she was, like, living under the bed, and she had no arms or legs. And, like, oh, man, that was so trippy.
0: What was your biggest fear when you were a little kid?
1: Uh, the dark. Like, I was so afraid of the dark. We were grew, grew up in, like, this, you know, like I said, I went to, like, Baptist church, and it was all hellfire and damnation. And I remember them telling me, like, don't be afraid. Because when you're afraid, that is like demons clinging to you. And I was like, that makes me more afraid. Like, I'm I'm actually <laughs> yeah. extremely terrified. Yeah, and I just, I mean, that's scared the hell out of me. And I remember being a kid and always being afraid of, like, evil spirits and, like, all that kind of thing. I was definitely a skittish kid. So the dark was, like, not cool. And we weren't allowed to, like, leave our rooms after a certain hour. And I remember just, I couldn't sleep. I didn't get much sleep as a kid. I literally would stay awake almost all night. Freaking out. I sound like I'm not painting myself to be a very stable human being on this podcast. Do you
0: think you had anxiety as a kid? Oh I didn't know that it was. Like, should you have been medicated?
1: Probably. And I I was. I I remember getting on ADD medicine. I I was on Adderall, which probably made it worse. (laughs) You can (laughs) start spitting around. Amphetamine. Like like Raylan Baxter. Yeah, amphetamine uh, (laughs) (laughs) paranoia. Yeah.
0: That song, Lone Rider, was really sticking out to me uh, the wrong kind of fame is there the right kind of fame
1: uh, I don't know I just remember when I when I was drinking I would always do tragic crazy things that would get me mm. into trouble you know and I'd get into fights and always have to apologize to someone mm. and I felt like in the town that I was living, I was living in Florence Alabama at the town, at the time and I felt like I just had such a bad reputation for that. And I hated that. And I remember being very worried about what other people would think. but, And being very self-conscious about it. Like, I know that people think I'm just like this crazy person, you know. It's interesting
0: because you were self-conscious about it, and yet...
1: I couldn't do... Like, I couldn't stop doing it. Right. Yeah. You
0: had to get the attention and yeah, exactly. show the aggression to people around Well, you. I was also
1: in a complete blackout state, you yeah. know. Uh, you know uh, and... Cops getting called, you know. Just I remember the bar having to call the police one night, and it was the bar that my buddy Ben owned from Single Lock. And I remember being humiliated, and somehow I got—I didn't get arrested. My, my, my buddy, a buddy of mine, was like, "Get in the truck." The cops were looking for you, and I remember getting in the truck and driving, and just being humiliated and thinking like something has to stop. You know, like this has to, this can't continue, but. So that was like, I remember like that kind of thing. you know. When did
0: you take music more seriously? Like this could be your future.
1: Uh, I would say when I, I started taking it seriously when I was probably 20, 20. Yeah, probably. You know, like when I started touring, I remember it was very naive and I was so used to playing those like club gigs where you do like cover songs because I used to do that for extra money. Right. And you could do those gigs and not have a tuning pedal. You just tune by ear, you know? Yeah. And I remember going out and doing, like, my own solo stuff, and I would show up without a tuning pedal, and people would be like, what What are you doing? Like, <laughs> you don't have a tuner? You know, <laughs> I remember this steel player I played with, uh, Steve Fishel, who's amazing. I tuned to the wind. Yeah. He was like, where's your Where's your tuning pedal? And I was like, I don't have one. I just kind of tune by ear, you know? And, and he's like... You, Dude, he's like, you're, 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 you have you 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 got to be a pro, you know. I yeah. remember like not knowing what a pro meant, yeah. Yeah. you know, like having all your things and having them together, like. Yeah. And um, I didn't learn that till I was probably about 24. Did I start actually getting like way more pro? Yeah. You know, and having like everything I needed on stage, and not, you know, screwing it up or you know something like that.
0: Have you ever felt the presence of God while on stage? And in the throes of performing with the lights on you and the smoke and the the night. (laughs)
1: Uh, The presence of God? Yeah. I've definitely felt an omnipotent, like, thing. Like, I've felt like we were, I've definitely felt like in direct accordance with whatever the the divine purpose of the universe is. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds like some hippie shit, but... um, no I mean I've definitely felt something omnipotent for sure like when everything's going so well you just look at your band and it's like this telepathy that you're you, you just it's just you feel like you're gonna levitate off the stage it's so intense and like so the crowd is just so with you you know and yeah. they're so in it you just feel like oh man this is this is like you know it's a supernatural feeling to me right now
0: is there a place anywhere in the world that is sort of the most holy to you
1: I would say being in New Orleans is like it feels like I live there in another life or something. Mm. I just feel so familiar with the city. I feel like it knows me and I know it, and we we get along really well. Also, there's a sinister vibe there that I've always been sort of drawn to, mm. in a in a strange way. I, I don't I can't really describe it, but. There's, it's electricity or something in the air uh, of days gone by. You know, that city's seen everything uh, from Spanish influenza, to yellow fever, lots of people have died there. It, all, it could have gotten burned down in the Civil War, but it didn't because the Union uh, secured it very quickly because of their Navy. So, like, it's seen everything. It's seen this country begin. And uh, I just feel in a place like that where there's that much character... Um, and that many stories. It's. It. I feel very much rooted uh, in in that. Uh, and I wanted to learn more about. It. I'm also just addicted to history. I love history. Uh, you know, I love learning about it. And uh, probably should What's be. What's the last book you read? Uh, <laughs> I'm actually reading this book on Houdini right now. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, It's about his life, which is very interesting to me. Um, And then before that, uh, I read uh, The Way to Love by Anthony DeMeo, which is just like this kind of uh, spiritual. He was like a Jesuit priest who Mm -hmm. just sort of transcended religion and just sort of started like, it's about like attachment and like letting Mm -hmm. go of attachment. I don't know. I'm usually reading self-help books. (laughs) Pretty much all I ever read.
0: All right. We have to do at least one creative exercise. All right. So sitting under this microphone, which I'm going to use right now, is a copy of... Great Expectations. Ooh, classic. I would lie if I would say that I've gotten all the way through it, Yeah. but there's something it's about your language and Dickens' language that remind me of how we're all connected, maybe, in the grand thread of writers and artists. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a I'm random now. I don't know part... Why of Great Uh, Expectations, and you're going to, without thinking too hard, go right to an artist or a song that moves you. Okay. Okay, starting with, was approached by such ingenious twists of path.
1: Souvenirs, John Prine.
0: Have you ever played with him? No,
1: never have. Would love to, but never have.
0: All right, next passage. Can the candle help it? (laughs) Uh, Candle in the wind, Elton John? (laughs) I don't
1: know. (laughs) I'm just like, if if we're talking uh, right off the top of my head. Okay. It's a hard one.
0: Once kept a boat at the temple stairs.
1: Harvest by Neil Young, I don't know.
0: Do you feel... Annoyed or complimented when people say oh, you sound like a young Neil. Yeah,
1: you know what? I'm glad you asked that question um It bothers me only because I feel like it's offensive to Neil Young. (laughs) And I'm such a big fan that I would hate to offend him. And so I'm like, please don't say that. Like, I hate it when people say that. Because I don't want him to read that somewhere and be like, oh, so he's the new me, huh? You know what I mean? Like, that would just humiliate uh, me. That famous
0: story when Springsteen was going into Columbia with his demos and Dylan was coming out with his checks. (laughs) Yeah. And Dylan goes... Hey, I heard you're the new me. And I just (laughs) walked out. Yeah, that would be just like a trip,
1: man. Whoa. Yeah.
0: Next one. Dissatisfied and uncomfortable.
1: Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen.
0: I think it's probably in my top ten favorite albums of all time.
1: It's a great record. It's an incredible record.
0: How does he get like... What was it like, just an eight-track tape machine? How does it sound that good?
1: I don't. I have no idea. But it's my favorite record of his, probably, probably in the the one I've listened to, definitely the most, besides Born to Run.
0: All right, last one. An unusual flutter.
1: <laughs> um, Ain't no more cane. Uh, basement tapes. Bob Dylan. In mm. the band. It's a good one.
0: We had to learn all these band songs for the 50th anniversary this year, because we did like a. Performing Arts Center tour Yeah And you're like Oh I've sung these songs Most of my life How hard could it be Yeah And like learning The night they drove Old Dixie down (laughs) I was like Why can't I get this right Yeah Because they like Had their own rhythm They they
1: have their own rhythm
0: Like there's no way To really replicate it Yeah It was like pretty painful like i was like man i think i just have to sing this my way or it's not gonna
1: happen i did a cover of this wheels on fire for the show in lafayette and the rhythm on that is insane if you listen to that song on that record it's like it's hard to recreate that it's impossible i think
0: let me ask you a guitar chord nerd question the song magenta Mm -hmm. on your newest record renegade uh there's this acoustic car- guitar opening that reminds me of... These boots are made for walking. Oh, Where yeah. <laughs> like, the like a passing chord. Yeah, yeah.
1: <clears throat> it's like the E minor that you... And then the E7 thing, and then yeah. you open it. Yeah, yeah. I, I just love that chord. It's like a Dave Rawlings-type thing. Yeah. You know, I'm a big Dave Rawlings fan, obviously. I'm such a... He's just... What a great guitar player, you know? It's such an obvious love but it's it's definitely legit and uh but no i mean that that progression i love that song i don't think people are gonna get that one on the on the record like a lot of people probably won't get it but that was like one of my favorite songs on the on the record you know so Do you think idea. we can
0: sneak in a song before you have to go sound check yeah you can grab it what song is this uh
1: magenta it's the name of this song
0: It, Mr. Dylan LeBlanc you can go to DylanLeBlanc.com for his music and his tour dates he's going to be all over Europe coming up uh, touring behind his wonderful record Renegade produced by Dave Cobb on ATO Records it is one of my favorite releases of the year and uh, he's going to be playing in Austin, Texas in September and more places in the States if you go to the situation.com, you can see that back in June there was uh, an in-depth look at his newest record and uh, it says that he calls himself D, which uh, I should have read the article, and then I could have just called him D, I said Dylan, like a total fool. As you might have heard, this is the last episode of our summer season, and we're going to be taking a little break. I will be going over to uh, Scotland for the Edinburgh Fringe. And you know what? Listen to our previous episodes like Bella Fleck and Abigail Washburn, or maybe Mandolin Orange, or The Shook Twins, or my personal favorite, The Late. Tony Joe White. You can find all our episodes on the Bluegrass Situation on the podcast page or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, Is MySpace still a thing? Who knows? Maybe it's on there. And uh, my group, Dust Bowl Revival, will be playing the Rhythm and Roots Festival in Rhode Island, Labor Day weekend, and also Bristol Rhythm and Roots in Virginia and Tennessee, September 21st. But also... Bourbon and Beyond in Louisville, Kentucky the 22nd on the Bluegrass Situation stage. Check it out. We'll be all over the place coming up DustbowlRevival.com Hope you have a restful August. We'll see you in September. The show on the road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love the show on the road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever growing collection of podcasts up right now on the BluegrassSituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail.